You're listening to a North Valley Community Church podcast. For more information and resources, visit us online at northvalleychurch.org. Well, good morning. My name is Ryan. I serve as a lead pastor. I welcome you guys here. Uh, you know, on this series, I want to encourage you to slow down and really take everything in that God has uh, planned and purposed for us to celebrate God being with us. Uh, in the time of Christmas season, it's easy to kind of get distracted and deterred from actually celebrating and cherishing uh, the birth of Christ. You know, I grew up in a home where we, we had a lot. We did the Santa Claus thing, got the Christmas tree, watched all the movies, uh, and, and still, thank goodness, like my mom and my dad would still come together, and we'd open up the scriptures on Christmas morning and read the real story. And, and that served as a foundation for me to, to kind of know that there's this cultural narrative about Christmas, and then there's this biblical narrative. And so this morning, I want to just encourage us to slow down and not miss it. You know, just the other day, uh, you know, I was, it was Friday, it was Friday, we had a special lunch appointment, uh, my wife and I, and we were meeting somebody over at the Starbucks on Desert Ridge, and it was a very important appointment, and I was just kind of lost in the hustle and the bustle of Christmas, lots of errands, lots of running around, woke up really early, did a little workout, went to the church campus, was studying, getting ready for this message, Leslie shows up, and she's like, hey, it's time to go, and I'm like, I'm in my sweatpants, and she's like, I'm sorry, but we got to go. So we get to the lunch appointment. These guys are like decked out and wearing like suits and stuff. And I, and I just said, I did, you know, just to break the ice and just state the obvious, the elephant in the room, I look terrible. And I just said to them, I said, man, I'm sorry. I, I look like a mixture I know between uh, Al-Qaeda and, and, and like some little exercise guy, you know, um, because I had just had this beard. So here's the deal. Like I was just off. And, and and I went into that meeting and just felt like ri- somewhere a mixture between Al Qaeda with this beard and Richard Simmons, you know, and and so um, they it was part of my style is you know I'm just going to be the hardest critic on myself because figure if I if I if I do that then I'll be fine with any what anybody else has to say. Um, when it comes to Christmas, we can get caught off guard and not be ready. And when it comes to getting ready for your home and your heart this Christmas season, I want to orient you to the historical real story of Christmas. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be doing that, looking at uh, the gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 2. A couple of things I want to point out to you um, in the Christmas story is this, is that the real Christmas story is historical. It is a prophetic. It is a ordinary story of a child being born in Bethlehem, and it is glorious. And this is kind of the framework in which Luke is going to unfold the story of Christmas. And it can be very easy to like miss the point. Uh, Let me just highlight to you a couple of interviews in culture about Christmas. Prince, the pop star, said this about Christmas. I don't understand what Christmas is really all about or what it means. It seems to be like this huge convention that everyone just assumes. And Larry King said this when asked if he could interview anybody in the world, who would he interview? He said, I would interview the person of Jesus Christ And he goes on to say, well, what would you ask him? And he said, I would ask him if he was really born of a virgin because that answer would define everything 
for me. When we come to the gospel account of Luke, our minds and hearts can be at ease realizing that Luke is a historian who takes under account the very the life and of Jesus Christ uh, to investigate the claims of eyewitnesses. And very likely Luke, this is the same guy that the apostle Paul mentions as being an accompanying with him in the missionary journeys in the book of Acts. It's also Paul mentions him in Colossians about a physician, very intelligent man creating a historical account taking prophetic scripture that promises that had been made about Christ, this coming Messiah, Jesus Christ, and being fulfilled in this time, he very likely interviews Mary about the, the details and the accounts and many other eyewitnesses about Jesus Christ. And so this morning, what we're gonna do is we're gonna, I'm framing the, 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 the gospel of Luke, his good news about the life of Jesus Christ and kind of these categories, it's historical, it's not mythical. Um, you know, at this time, there was kind of this perpetuation of the Roman culture upholding kind of these mythical uh, deity men, like you have... Um, uh, the guy that got Hercules. Hercules was said to be born with these divine powers. The, the myth that was going on during this time is that like in, in the beginning of his birth, he was noted with all these incredible powers. He Serpents went into his crib and he squeezes them with his little hands as a baby. Jesus isn't portrayed like that at all. He's portrayed as an ordinary child, a real historical person. It's not like a, a myth or a legend. Like when you go to the movies and you watch Wolverine or you see Batman or Spider-Man, everybody in American culture knows those are just myths. Jesus is not a myth. He's a man. He's God who became man and he enters into human history. And Rome is a, an incredible uh, historical uh, documenting uh, uh, empire that records this. And then over the next few weeks, I'm gonna be unfolding that literature as along with uh, Jewish historians by the name of Josephus, along with guiding through uh, in Luke's account in the Gospel of Luke. It's prophetic in the sense that we're gonna see scriptures being promised thousands of years before and hundreds of years before and all the accounts and the details being fulfilled. And then it's ordinary in the sense that we're gonna see that Jesus is really a man born in a manger, a trough, a little donkey or an, a cow, whatever, a trough in which would be a feeding trough. And we see Jesus born there. And then we'll see the glory of the story that it is absolutely supernatural. There is a virgin birth. It is historically documented. And then we come to and see the implications upon that in our own life. So this morning, I just, as we get going, let me orient you to uh, Caesar and Roman culture just for a moment because there's great mention of that. And again, let me, let me remind you, uh, these are prophetic times. People were looking for a Messiah, the Godson. And there's kind of these requirements for the Messiah that there would be this star that would appear, that this child could be born in Bethlehem. Um, there is this, that he would be a direct descendant of King David. Wise men would travel from afar and that he would be born of a virgin. Very likely Caesar Augustus, the, the emperor, the king 
of Rome did not know all these details. Herod, his client king installed over Judea, knew more about this uh, than Caesar did. And I named this Kings in Courage because I want you to see what's at play here is literal historical kings, but then we just got done singing about King, Jesus being the king over everything and the supremacy and the sovereignty with that. So let me unfold to you uh, Caesar Augustus and then we'll jump in. Augustus was the founder of the Roman Empire. Again, historical notation, Luke's going to unfold that for us. He is the founder of the Roman Empire, the first emperor ruling from 27 BC until his death was uh, 14 AD. His real name is Octavius. Uh, Jesus would have mentioned uh, him, uh, the Caesars, the kings in power later when he says, render under Caesars that which is Caesars and render under God's that which is God's. Uh, Caesar, this Caesar in particular, his real name is Octavius. And he is kind of like the adopted grandnephew of Julius Caesar. Uh, he has an organizational genius about him. He could take cities and provinces and, and create a strong government, an economy, strategic alliances. This guy was incredibly gifted. He could build literally communities and civilizations like you see those kids on TV building these incredible Lego uh, uh, things that they're doing. Caesar just had that ability. Napoleon and Adolf Hitler as well upheld him as an incredible example of military might and power. This is King Caesar. The life in Roman culture during this time was not something that was like highly valued. And so Caesar is not by any means a moral example or a positive example in character, but in his competency and his power to be a global level leader, he is that. He formed this Pax Romona. It was this strong time period of peace through strategic alliances and military power. Luke's gonna note that God's gonna use Caesar Augustus as king to fulfill his promises that this Messiah, Jesus Christ, would be born in the exact place that he had promised. So in a sense, what we're gonna see is the king, Lord of all creation, is moving the heart of King Caesar. So this morning, as we get into this, I just want to remind you of the importance that the story that we're telling you, teaching you, is historical, prophetic, ordinary, and yet glorious. So let's stand for the reading of God's word together. We're in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. I'll just read it aloud. You can follow along silently. And it says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Heavenly Father, we pray for your work to be done, that we would see your majesty and power over all kings and kingdoms and governments and authorities. 
and see that you are at work even behind the scenes. And Lord, that we would take steps of courage, steps of faith and courage to respond in submission to your kingship over our lives. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. King Caesar's plan. It says, in those days, a decree went out. This would be an official order, a proclamation. And what Caesar said, Caesar got done. A decree would go out uh, throughout the Roman Empire, throughout the world there in the Roman Empire. There'd be provinces set up, uh, all scattered out through his empire. And Rome was a genius at uh, establishing roadways and cities and villages as a global force to be reckoned with. And Caesar issues this decree. The question comes is why did he issue the decree? A couple reasons why. Let's finish the verse and then we'll get to that. It says, this was the first registration that it can also be understood as before the registration when Quirinius was governor. That idea of governor can also be a a role of leadership. And directly it is evident that uh, Quirinius was working under the power, a direct a subordinate of Caesar to accomplish this registration. It says all went to be re- registered, each to his own town. A couple reasons why uh, Caesar likely had this done is one is for taxes. Scripture tells us that, but also that there would be this uh, emphasis by doing a registration or a census like that, Caesar could assess the power and the might of a prospective military by identifying the men. And so Caesar is a military genius, an organizational genius. And what we're going to see is that King Caesar, Roman history agrees, Jewish history agrees, Christian history agrees right here from the Gospel of Luke. Caesar issues this decree. And each person would have to go to the own hometown. Now, Joseph is the father at least the legal father of Jesus. Now he's going to have to go back to the city where he was uh, from and he will bring Mary along and the child will be born there. And that is an exact prophecy fulfillment of what God had worked and promised through the prophet Micah 500 years before. Here's what I wanna point out to you just as a note is that God's always working behind the scenes. Every time something happens in life, you, you can take sh- uh, 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 be rest assured that God's working behind the scenes of whatever is going on. Here in this narrative where Luke's uh, explaining King Caesar issuing this decree, we see that God's already at work doing his work to bring the proper promises to fulfillment. And so theologically, I wanna highlight to you this concept that God's sovereign. Let's say that together. God is sovereign. Let's say that again. God is sovereign. Here's what it says in Proverbs 21. It says this, the king's heart is like a stream of water directed. The Lord, he guides, by the Lord, he guides it wherever he pleases. Sovereignty has to deal with how God directs and how God guides. He's the king above all of creation. And here in this historical account, yes, we see a real man by the name of Caesar Augustus ruling and reigning in the Roman Empire, but he's operating and stepping to and moving and his heart's being prompted by God to accomplish God's plans. And so even if he's got a false motive, even if it's not a a godly motive, it's God's working behind the scenes. You can be rest assured that no matter what goes on in life, God's always at work, 
always at work. God is sovereign. Look what it says in Daniel 2.21. He controls the courses of world events. He removes kings and sets up other kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the scholars. God's the giver, even if you have a Hindu doctor who helps you in psychiatry or psychiatry or any neuroscience, God's the one that gives people wisdom and knowledge. God's the giver of everything. God is sovereign. He uses all sorts of people from unlikely places. God is sovereign. In Romans, the apostle Paul tells us when he wrote a letter to the church in Rome, He said this, reminds him of this. He says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. See, here's what I wanna just remind you of, that God's plan, God's got a plan, not for King Caesar, but a plan for King Jesus. Here's what we see in Luke chapter two, verse four. And Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because, Luke writes, because he was, the, was of the house and the lineage of David. This is a promise that God had made. Here's what we're gonna learn, that God is a promise maker and God is a promise keeper. Let's say that together. God is a promise maker and God is a promise keeper. The great joy about coming to the historical narrative of Christ and Christmas is that you you see this incredible sovereignty being unfolded into real life events and then promises that had been made hundreds and thousands of years before. Here's what the prophet Micah said, that there would be a king coming out of Bethlehem. Look what it says in Micah 5, 2. And as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, seemingly insignificant among the clans, of Judah, from you a king will emerge who will rule over Israel on my behalf. That king is King Jesus. Here's the point. God is a promise maker. God's a promise keeper. The beauty and the glory and the story of Christmas is seeing that God makes promises and fulfills promises. And so Luke will agree and Christian thinking and theology and history will agree. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Now you can say who Jesus is. Was he, was he a liar? Did he really not know that he, he, or did he just lie about his divinity? Or was he uh, a lunatic and just crazy? Or was he really the Lord? And that's what, that's what Luke portrays him as, Christ the Lord. And so Jesus was born according to God's plan in the right place in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is the location of the birth of Christ because Let's look back at Luke 2, 4 on the previous uh, slide. In Luke 2, 4, it says, And Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, Nazareth. Let me tell you about Nazareth. Nazareth was a border town. It would be like Nogales, or it could be like El Paso, Texas. When you think of when my brother lived in El Paso, and he called it the armpit of the world. Uh, El Paso, there's some beautiful places in El Paso. I've been to El Paso. My brother had a ranch out in El Paso, out in the Waco tanks and the mountains, and there's some beauty there. But Nazareth has kind of got this reputation that nothing good could come out of Nazareth because where you're from could tell a lot about the person. And that's true, mainly it's true in in the South, that's very much true, is where you're from really does tell a lot about the person. And it's interesting to me that uh, what we're going to see is Joseph, the, the legal father of Jesus, is 
from the town of Nazareth and he needs to travel to Bethlehem. Now, this would have been about 90 plus miles. It would be like if you're on I-17 and you stop off at Black Canyon City and then you've got to get up to Flagstaff, it's 90 plus miles. Because there was this decree from Caesar Augustus, Joseph needed to go up from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Bethlehem is the location of Christ's birth. It's also Joseph's hometown. That's where he would have been born. Bethlehem means, it literally means the house of bread. And what's beautiful about this is the, the place called the house of bread. This is where, where Jesus would be born. And he later proclaims himself and he says, I am the bread of life. So in Bethlehem is the place in which Joseph will need to get back to for the registration. It is kind of uphill. So it says that he went up. He's gonna have to travel a good long ways. It is a place in which we're gonna see God make a promise 500 years before the time and the place in which Christ was born, that promise is made by Micah. So here's what we're gonna see is not only that God's at work, he's doing a great work, he's organizing and moving the heart of King Caesar to accomplish the plans for King Jesus. And so what's the response in light of that? Here's what we have. As a believer in Jesus Christ, you have Christ the King. He rules over everything. He's supreme, he's sovereign. That's who he is. You're not here by accident. You're not hearing God's word by chance. God has planned it and purposed it that you hear. And then the question comes is, how do I respond in light to hearing that God is a powerful, almighty, majestic king and he rules and reigns over everything? Well, we see in the life of Joseph and Mary, their courage. And I've titled this message, Kings and Courage. And my question would be to you is, in light of a great and incredible king, reigning on high, who deserve, the Bible says that every tongue, every nation, every tribe, everybody one day will give praise to this king. They will bow down and worship and acknowledge that he is the Lord. Some will do it being forcefully because they have rejected him on earth and some just willingly laying down their lives. As a Christian, I think the greatest posture is that we keep seeing Christ as this king, reigning king and that we see ourselves as servants of the king. And the heart and hope that I have behind this message is that you see Christ as your king. He is your CEO. He rules over everything. God has sovereignly positioned and placed him throughout human history, and we're being verified in, in Luke's account. We see it from Roman history, testifying and telling the story. Jesus was a literal historical person, and it seems that there is uh, the Jewish people have even upheld, yes, we see that this man named Jesus was here during the reign of Caesar Augustus. Yes, born in Bethlehem. And then we have to ask ourselves, will we submit ourselves to a sovereign king? Will we submit ourselves with and take a great step of faith and courage? And in the life of Joseph and Mary, we're going to see that this morning that they do. Verse four, and it says, and Joseph also went up. See, he made a decision that he was going to do the right thing. He's going to leave Nazareth, and he's going to go uphill to Bethlehem, 90-plus miles. It says, from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to, to Judea, to the city of David, 
I think Joseph was probably motivated by a couple of things. One, he didn't want to be a lawbreaker. He knows Caesar's power, but he also shudders at the power and the glory of God because he'd already encountered an angel that had told him, Joseph, you got to take this woman to be your wife. That which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit and you will call him Jesus. So Joseph's motivated to get back to the city of David because he probably would have recalled from the prophet Micah 500 years before that this child, this Messiah, Jesus, would be born in that place. It says, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Joseph was a carpenter. Joseph was a tough guy. He would have had calluses on his hands. He would have probably had a strong build as carpenters would. He would have worked with metals. He would have worked with wood. He would have worked with stone. And he, and he probably wasn't expecting this, that he's going to be the father of God. And here's his life. He's going along and he begins to fall in love with this girl. And in the midst of their betrothal and their their, their time, she's found pregnant with child. So how does Joseph respond? He responds just like any of one of us would. He would have responded with fear. Look what happens. Matthew uh, 1, 18 through 25, it says this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Notice what Matthew records there that Joseph, before they came together. So this is not Joseph's biological son. This is going to be a legal son, but not a biological son because Matthew records, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit and her husband, Joseph, being a just man, meaning he had good character. Joseph did the right thing. He was unwilling to put her to shame and resolved to divorce her quietly. Why would he divorce her? Because he's betrothed. That idea of betrothed is, is actually, it's, it's in Levitical law, it is a legal marriage. And she has a child with somebody else? It just doesn't make sense. Joseph's name would have been mud. He would have lost friends and a reputation, not being a good man. So he chooses, and he could put her to shame. He could publicly reveal to her all this, or publicly reveal to the community, the faith community there, that Mary was with child. But he makes a decision and says, no, I'll divorce her quietly. But see, God intercedes. Joseph has a story and a history of trying to do what's right. He does the right thing. Matthew one twenty says this, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Matthew 1, or 21, continuing on, and she will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. This is Isaiah now quoting hundreds and hundreds of years before this took place. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from his sleep, he did, look what it says, he did as the angel of the Lord had commanded. He took his wife, 
He took his wife even though he would be shamed because he had been visited by an angel of the Lord and he realized this is the real deal. Mary's not lying. Mary wasn't sleeping around with somebody else. This is God's plan. This is what the prophets of old have talked about, Joseph would have been saying. And now he's beginning to comprehend, oh my goodness, God's divine plan is being unfolded in my life. So he has to have the question, am I going to respond in fear or am I going to respond in faith? Joseph takes courageous steps of faith. Joseph serves for us a great example for all of us that when we don't understand what's going, wrong, going on and things seem to be going wrong, we have a choice to make. Every single one of us have a choice to make. The circumstances are crazy. Things are going wrong. Uh, and you, your life's being reordered and you've got a decision to make. Well, I respond to what I know and I believe to the best of my ability to do what I know is right and honoring to God. And Joseph does that. Look what it says. Continuing on, he took his wife, but knew her not. Again, now Matthew records another uh, eyewitness to inform and encourage us to look. This is a virgin birth. Joseph's not the biological father, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. Here's the point. Joseph did what was right. Joseph for us serves as a great example for all of us as men, that there's times in our life, it could be in our business, it could be in our family, it could be out in the community, when we're gonna be challenged to do something and we could take the easy road out. And in this situation, Joseph could have easily divorced her quietly and kept face and reputation with the faith community. Because legally, she's, she's got a baby that's against the, 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 the Israel's law and she's got a baby. And so he chooses because God's working and he sees God at work here and he says, no, I'm gonna do the right thing. And he takes that courageous step and I can imagine you, the distance again would have been like from Black Canyon City all the way up to a Flagstaff, 90 plus miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And he's going in a couple of reasons knowing I'm gonna go because Caesar's issued this, but I'm also going because I believe at the bottom of my heart that God's at work here. And with each step, he had the time to process and to think, man, God's unfolding this thing. God's at work here. Joseph chose to do the right thing. My question to you is, will you choose to do what's right? When the writing's on the wall and God begins to organize extraordinary events into your life and you can't explain it other than it must be God, are you gonna respond in fear and stay in fear? Or are you gonna step out and take that step of courageous faith? Courage is the quality or the mind or the spirit that enables a person to be free of difficulty, danger, and pain. It's, it's to act with bravery. In the Christian life, we've always got to continually moving out into the faith zone of our life where we realize it's uncomfortable, it's arduous, it's challenging, but Joseph's going to choose to do that because he's already been revealed enough to understand this is God at work here. Mary's not out with somebody else. God's at work here. This is according exactly to God's plan. Another thing that I love about Joseph is Joseph knew God's word. He was a just man. He sought to do what was right. He would have known the scripture. He's a hardworking man. He would have had a reputation. And he trains his son and raises his son in that. And so here we see the example of Joseph being played out, but also we see Mary's courageous step of faith. 
when Joseph, look what it says. When Joseph went up to be registered, it says, uh, Luke records, with Mary. So we see that Joseph, while he's going up, moving from Nazareth to Bethlehem, now we're looking at the life of Mary, Luke records that Mary's with him. And so why is that? Maybe Mary's a direct descendant of King David as well, or maybe that they have such a relationship and, and, and Joseph's leadership, and he says, if I leave you in Nazareth with an unexplainable pregnancy, you could be left in harm's way, but Joseph's leadership likely rises up. Mary's intelligence as well. She wants to support her husband. She would have known how discouraged and struggling he would, that journey would be by the physical distance that he would have to cover. But they're together. And I see Mary's courageous faith to go with her family, her husband, Joseph. She is betrothed. That means literally in legal terms for the Levitical law in the history of Israel, they're already married, but they're in this waiting period where they are gonna wait about a year before they consummate the marriage. It says she was betrothed, who was with child, she was betrothed with child. And while they were there, the time came to give, uh, time came for her to give birth. And Luke just portrays this in simple terms. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. This is Jesus. It's important too that it's her firstborn son. He would have been the rightful heir of the kingship of King David. And she says, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. A couple things about these cloths and this uh, Mary's act of wrapping this child. Uh, physically speaking, this would have done a couple of things for the child. It would have kept the baby warm. It would have, uh, um, they believe medically at the time that when you wrap a child, a newborn infant, it would keep the bones straight. And so um, Luke records that, but I found interesting too is that symbolically and spiritually speaking, it was a practice within ancient Israel to wrap a child with claws like that uh, to re represent that you're dedicating this child unto the Lord to walk straight on straight paths. And so here's this, Mary, this act that Mary is dedicating her child to the Lord, she sees herself as a servant in submission to a sovereign king. That's her perspective, that she's gonna take the hard route as well. She's gonna take the courageous steps of faith to live a life of obedience under the sovereignty and the supremacy of Christ the King. She's not moving for Caesar. She's not doing that for Caesar and the governments or the law of the land. She's operating with this divine step and obedience to follow in sweet submission to a sovereign king. And her, you know, in the Catholic church, they, the tradition is to make much of Mary. And, and you know what? I think sadly to say in evangelical churches, we take the opposite sometimes and make little of Mary. And the appropriate response with Mary would be is that she is the example of our faith, not the object of our faith. The example of faith is she says, look what it says later. Well, here's the point real quick. Mary chooses to serve God in her family. 
Mary chooses to serve God in her family. She chooses to serve God. She's going to be visited by an angel, and the angel's going to explain to her, had already explained to her, hey, Mary, that which is conceived in you is from the Holy Spirit. And Mary's response is, I'm your servant. You're king. I'm not. I'll, I'll work with that. Mary's this sweet little Jewish girl, probably 14, 15 years old at the time. And she's found to be with child. I mean, she doesn't get the special wedding. She doesn't get any of that. She takes the hard way. She takes the incredible hard way, but look at her response here in Luke 138. It says, Mary responded, I am the Lord's servant. And that word servant means submission. And I think this is such a great example for us all. Oh, quit playing king over your life. You're not. You have a sovereign king and his ways are always better than your ways. And when you operate in a sweet submission like this, look, Mary responded, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. She chose a difficult path. She did not choose the easy way. She chose the hard way. Mary's a woman of prayer. In the beginning of the book of Acts, you begin to see Mary's there. She's there with Luke and they're praying. Jesus has already been uh, crucified. He's been buried. He's risen again. The church is beginning to form. Mary's a woman of prayer. She's a great example for us. So I say to you, ladies, be like Mary. Be courageous. When your husband makes that decision that you're going to have to relocate, I mean, Joseph's like, hey, Mary, we got to go from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And whatever happened there, whatever conversation happened, there, Mary might have already been thinking, yeah, of course we do, because I'm of the house of David too. Or it could have been, I don't want to go. We don't know fully the, with the situation. But she says, I'll trust you, Joseph. I'll go with you. But what we see, Luke says, they're, they're together. Let me just take a moment for husbands, wives. Work in tandem together. Submit together to the sovereign king. Man, it works great like that. That's what always heals and restores marriages is when the king is not the husband or the wife wearing the pants in the house. It's Christ is our king. And we'll submit to that. And so in everything, every decision that's made, every relationship that's formed, every relationship that's navigated or changed, it all comes under the authority of scripture. And Mary's response is, I am the Lord's servant. Could you, could you say that over your life? Like if somebody said to you, what, what's, no, what's notable about you? Oh, you know, he's, he, he is so, he's so intelligent. He's so sharp he's kind of arrogant. Uh, he's kind of a know-it-all. Or would it be like, that guy's a servant. He's so intelligent, but he doesn't push that onto people. Or for the gal, oh, she's sweet. Yeah, she's nice. She's pretty. She's always looking the part. She's smart, sharp, kind of sassy. But what if it's like, no, no, that, that girl, she, she, she's a servant. She's always behind the scenes. She's always working. She's not up for herself, promoting herself. She's not infatuated with image. 
She's infatuated with her king. This Christmas, my prayer is, is that you, you would see the king, the kingship of Christ. The true king, Caesar thought he was. Napoleon and Adolf Hitler hailed him as a great example. Us, King Jesus. King Jesus. Amen? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I pray as we move forward from here that we would take this next step and, Lord, we would take a courageous step of faith. I pray, God, as they walk out of here today, that they would begin to say, all right, all right, all right. Christ, if you're king, I'll submit like a servant to you. And I'm ready to take your orders. Give me your word. Give me your spirit to help guide and prompt me. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, before we leave here today, here's what I want you to do. I want you to write this down, take this home. What courageous step of faith do you need to take? Christ is your king. I'm not your king. Christ is your king. You're not your own king. Even if you want to act like you are, there's a king that's higher than you. The president's not our king. King Jesus is higher above all kings. And so I ask that in light of that reality, what courageous step of faith do you need to take to honor your king? Amen? You guys are dismissed. Thanks for being with us. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening. To become a supporter of North Valley Community Church, give online today at northvalleychurch.org.